millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I wasn't looking forward to a professional career in writing. I was looking forward to captaining the England cricket team and becoming prime minister. Hello, welcome to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm your host, writer and journalist Francesca Steele. Now, Geoffrey Archer is a bit different from many of my usual guests. He's not at all sentimental, he's very confident. I mean, this is a former MP who went to prison for perjury after all, and wrote about prison too. And in many ways, that confidence seems impenetrable. But this is, I think, what makes him so interesting to listen to, because even Geoffrey Archer is afflicted by self-doubt, and even Geoffrey Archer has had to come up with strategies for dealing with it, even if sometimes the strategy is basically just being ferociously productive. Since his first book, Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less, was rejected by 17 publishers before selling in 1976, he has sold more than 300 million copies of his books worldwide, which makes him one of the top 25 fiction authors of all time. His most successful novel, Cain and Abel, has sold as many copies as To Kill a Mockingbird, and his latest outing, a new one in the William Warwick Detective series, is Classic Archer, a sharply plotted page-turner. Amazing given that Archer doesn't actually plot at all, as you will hear. We talk about his incredible self-discipline when it comes to his writing routine, how lots of editors rejected his debut because none of them believed he would write a second book, how marketing departments managed his first bestseller when they were nervous about it, and how he would not have made a good Prime Minister. Before we get going, I just want to say something about Write-Off's sponsor this season. Dealing with rejection is just one part of a writer's life. Jericho Writers are with you for every word. They are all about embracing the entire journey, rejections and all, and are committed to helping you hit your writing goals whatever stage you're at. Their inspiring courses, editorial services and events have launched writing careers, and members benefit from heaps of additional content such as video courses, masterclasses and weekly live online events, many of which I've enjoyed myself. By becoming a Jericho Writers member, you can get insight into the world of agents and publishers, power through your plot problems, level up your prose style and polish your submission before it lands in an agent's inbox. Plus, you'll be learning alongside a worldwide community of writers who will keep you motivated and on track, even when a rejection rolls in. Listeners of the podcast can get an exclusive 15% discount on membership by going to jerichowriters.com forward slash join dash us and entering the code write dash off. I will put that in the show notes. So here's Jeffrey. Well, it's not quite right that I wrote Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less to stave off bankruptcy. I wrote Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less because I couldn't get a job. No one would employ a former member of parliament who was left parliament facing bankruptcy. Uh, 
so I wrote Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less. In, when, when you're quite right, I was 34 years old, 35 years old. I just left Parliament. I didn't, unlike you, uh, have what I wasn't looking forward to a professional career in writing in one form or another. I was looking forward to captaining the England cricket team and becoming prime minister. And both were disastrous failures. So we, we, tried, we tried not a penny more, not a penny less. And it was turned down by, I think it was 15 or 16 publishers. I'd, I'd almost given up when uh, Jonathan Cape uh, read it and said, look, we'll give you 3,000 pounds and we'll print 3,000 copies. And I always say to authors, by the way, the only question you should ever ask a publisher is what is the first print? They can say all sorts of things about how wonderful you are, but they answering the question, how many copies are on the first print? That tells you everything you need to know. And in my case, I didn't know. In my case, it was 3,000. And they just about got rid of them in a year. Just about. Uh, and 3,000 didn't really help me. Uh, and then it went into paperback. You couldn't have some shops selling it at six or seven. You couldn't have it discounted. There was no Kindle. So your hardback sales were always pretty small because a lot of people waited for the softback, knowing it would be £4.99. We now live in an age where my latest book, which came out two weeks ago, is £20. But frankly, you can get it almost anywhere for somewhere between 10 and 12 <laughs> which has, of course, affected the paperback sales in later years, whereas with not a penny more, not a penny less, they had to wait. So it did quite well, not brilliantly, it did yes. quite well in paperback because it sold 25,000 copies. Wow. In, in a year, in a year. Can I take you back a little bit to how you began to write that? So, so you'd stepped down from being an MP and you were trying to find another job. I know at that point you'd actually had quite a few other jobs, hadn't you? You'd had to sort of, you'd been a policeman, an army recruit and a teacher. Was writing something that was on, on the back of your mind when you were doing those other jobs? And when you say you were trying nope. to get, no. And when you say you were trying to get another job at this point, after the Aquablast scandal, was there something else what, what other jobs were you trying to get and who was saying no to you? Well, as I say, there weren't many people who were willing to employ me. And after Aquablast, uh, where I'd lost everything, I'd invested in a company which was fraudulent on the advice of the Bank of Boston. I, I was in terrible debt. And you're quite right to say uh, no one would be advised to write a novel to get themselves out of debt. That would be uh, really a waste of time. Uh, so I, I'd lost the money. I went away to write and I was stupid enough to believe it'd be fascinating to know how you felt when you wrote your first novel. I was stupid enough to believe the very first person who saw it would desperate to have it and that I was <laughs> on the way to. And, and, and that was just silly. Uh, but I suspect most first authors genuinely believe the world can't wait for what they've just written. Whereas yes. in truth, uh, it's the other extreme. 
Well, I think, I mean, for me, and I, from talking to people, I think this is quite common. I think it, it can veer wildly from that feeling to a feeling that it's just dreadful and that nobody will want to read it. And that they can sort of happen almost simultaneously, you know, that you're both Shakespeare and in a dustpin at the same time. Um, but Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less is in fact a book about near bankruptcy. And you have these four characters this kind of illustrious cast of characters. You have a, a professor and a doctor and a art dealer and an heir to an earldom, and they all sort of get screwed over by this kind of con artist, and then they try to get revenge and take back their millions. And it's, it you know, it, it has some similarities to what happened to you. And I, I, I presume that what happened to you is what prompted you to think up this imaginary world. And I wondered if... If, it, if you think you would have written that book or indeed written at all had you not had that real life experience, was it, was it the kind of intensity of that real no. life experience that prompted no. the need no, to I, write? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have written a word. I'd have ended up as Under Secretary of State for Transport and lasted about a year and a half. And uh, that would have been the end of that. No, I came to writing totally by mistake. And so, no, the novel, uh, writing my first novel uh, was something I'd never imagined. And indeed, a lot of the people who turned the book down found the, it's so autobiographical in the sense that here were four young men who had their money stolen from them and they were going to steal it back to the exact penny because going over the top would have uh, been stealing. Uh, they said, no, we don't want it, Jeffrey. And, and I, I got asked my agent, Deborah Owen, if she'd be kind enough to find out why. And they said, none of them believe you'll write a second book. They think this is it. Here is the novel about what happened to you, uh, and they, they're not going to get a second book. Because in those days, and it's changed a lot uh, in my lifetime, in publishing, they gave you a chance to do three books. Mm. You know, they, they reckoned you could build your fan base in three books. And so when I finally, finally uh, got published by Jonathan Cape, I hadn't totally given up, but very nearly. Mm. And and when you were writing it, so you had this feeling that everybody would be desperate to read it. Did you feel that it was good, having not anticipated being a writer? Did you find yourself immediately enjoying it? Did you feel that it was good stuff, genuinely, when you were writing? I think you think on a first novel, uh, yes, I think you believe that. Uh, after that, you get into the real world and realize there's only one person who will decide if it's any good, and that's the public. They decide, mm -hmm. no one else decides. So I say to young authors now, don't show it to your wife, don't show it to your husband, don't show it to a friend. They will all lie. They will all tell you it's wonderful and one of the world's next bestsellers. What <laughs> else are they going to say? Give it to a friend you trust and ask them to give it to someone who has never met you and doesn't know who you are. Take the cover off so there's no suggestion of your name and get them to write one page on what they think about it. Then you will get the truth because someone who doesn't know you, doesn't know who you are, reads the book and gives a report will not make it up. <laughs> I think that's true. Did you receive the rejections from publishers? Your, was your agent showing you them? 
and what I, I know you said they didn't they thought that you might not write a second book did they say anything else did they for example like the style I mean were no, you no no they never do you will know you get these letters saying uh, dear Debbie or was when she was my agent we thought it was very good yeah but not quite what we're publishing at the moment so there were always sentences like that which was a code for saying they didn't want to publish it. And that was fine. I didn't have any objection to that. And of course, uh, I know so many authors now, as you will, and some very distinguished and some very successful who uh, have been through exactly the same experience as I had. Mm. How did it feel when the rejections were rolling in? Well, forgive me for saying this to you, but it's, it's, it's now 45 years ago. It's quite it's quite hard to remember exactly how I felt. Of course, I was disappointed. I have no yeah. hiding of that. Of course, I, when the book was published, I rushed down to buy my Sunday Times and find out if I was on the bestsellers list in the top 10. And of truth, I now know historically, I wasn't in the top 100, let alone <laughs> the top 10. Uh, but the change actually came for me when the United States... Uh, purchased the book and then Sweden per purchased the book and that's I think when Jonathan Cape said wait a moment, wait a moment, is it possible you know here are two countries very diverse, very different uh, who are going to publish the book even before it comes out in England and that's when they said well we'll publish the book but the truth is the Americans only published 5,000 copies and the Swedish only published 1,000 copies so it wasn't what I would call an auspicious start I do think that's really inter interesting, the way that international rights might affect domestic rights. I mean, I've okay. heard that in a few in a few cases, and I, I wonder if you have any inkling as to why that happened, why America bought and published it first. International rights are a very strange thing, because you can't, you can't know why, for example, I sell millions of copies in Germany and do very little in France or Spain. I know authors who sell millions of copies in Spain and can't do anything in Germany. So the answer to your question is, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, my son, who takes these things very seriously, says that he noticed that when I changed publishers in Germany, they suddenly, the sales shot up. So maybe what authors should be looking for when they're considering abroad, of course, listen to your agent if you've got a good agent. But for me, what matters abroad now is the publisher, and perhaps even as important, if not more important, the translator. Mm. I think you jolly well want to make sure that your efforts are getting a good chance and you don't get people writing to you saying, well, I happen to have read you in English and in Japanese, Jeffrey. And frankly, the Japanese translation is rubbish. Yes, I've seen, I've seen the, um, the, the movement to put translators on the cover of, of British books. And I think it's a really interesting one because obviously in the Instagram age, the covers of books are mm -hmm. um, increasingly, well, not increasingly important, but well, maybe that is the phrase, increasingly important. And then you know, there's a lot of stuff fighting for marketing space. Um, but it does, it does seem to me that a lot of, yeah, I mean, the translators are doing an awfully big job, aren't they? And some of them are extremely talented. So not a penny more, not a penny less, as you mentioned, sold 3,000 copies initially in the first run. What happened after that? Did you immediately start writing again? 
did you feel that you were on the road to something that could be a lifelong career as it's turned out to be but at the time I guess you wouldn't have known and as you said um 3000 run even in that time of different publishing schedules wasn't huge so I wonder I wonder what your plan was at that time well, I wrote the second book shall we tell the president because it was on my mind immediately and my love of politics and my fascination with politics made me write that book and that sold 8,000 copies in hardback and uh, about 50,000 in softback. So I didn't really think yet. I wasn't making what I would call a living, which is always the problem for, dare I say it, journalists, uh, is that <laughs> if you have to give up your day job, but I don't have to write articles during the day or late at night or first thing in the morning. And I have a golden rule when I'm writing I will not write when I'm writing. And by that, I mean, whoever else rings me up and says, could you give us 700 words on the state of uh, the country at the moment or whatever subject it is? I say, no, I can't, I'm writing. <laughs> I think it's very interesting. I actually find myself more inclined to write fiction when I have journalism, and I'm a freelance journalist, so I do arrange my own time to some degree, but oh, I, I find uh, my creative brain is activated, I think, by having something else. And I suspect that's because the pressure is taken off a little bit, but, but um, I suppose everybody has a different way of doing it. I wanted to ask you, going back a wee bit, Cain and Abel, I think, was your first bestseller. Is that right? That was in 1979. Yes, so that was just a few years after um, Not A Penny More, not a, many, not a Penny Less. Do you remember how that felt? Because we've talked about this feeling that, you know, when you first start writing until reality hits, you you feel strongly that, you know, this is going to be an enormous success. And a few books in, yours very much was. How did that feel? Well, the sequence didn't run like that. But what actually happened was my agent, Deborah Owen, a very shrewd and clever lady, read Cain and Abel and David Owen read it as well, her husband. And she sat down with me and said, we're gonna take a big risk. I'm gonna auction this book in the United States. I think this is, this is the one. I could be wrong, she said, but I think this is the one. And the auction, they send the book out for a week to stay 20 publishers. So they've got a week to read it. And then they start bidding when that week is up. So the in a way, semi-answer your question is that week was agony. Because as Debbie said, if they don't, if nobody bids, we're back where we started and we're trying to flog it. And so I, I and I was in the United States at the time, sitting in my hotel room in a dreadful state. Uh, the bidding started on the Monday and it finished uh, on the Tuesday, just after midnight. It, it went, it just went on and on and on. And the final bid was 3,200,000. So the answer to your question, Francesca, is that was the first clue. But the second part of your question, I still wasn't confident. I still felt, you know, what happens if it goes wrong? You and I both know authors who've been paid vast sums of money, but actually the book was all right or even a failure. So I was still nervous. I was still... <sighs> not convinced. And then the publishers began to, pub, to panic. They'd paid this vast sum of money. And uh, they suddenly realized that no one in the United States had ever heard of me. And, uh, and I, if I can just show you, because Alison will kindly bring it across for me, 
the American version of Cain and Abel, you will see how they, by showing you, by the way, I think it's the most wonderful cover I've ever had. It's now 40 years old. But you will get the message very clearly on how they thought about me as an author compared to the title. Can you see? I mean, oh, I yeah. just wow. made it. <laughs> so for li- listeners, I'm just going to describe this. This American uh, edition of Cain and Abel has Cain and Abel in absolutely enormous fonts uh, across 95% of the book and then Jeffrey Archer written uh, very minutely at the bottom. Tiny, tiny. So they had no confidence in me at all. They thought the title was good and they liked the title. Though even that, you know, maybe you've had this problem. The lady in charge of me at Simon and Schuster was, uh, she said, I'm, I'm not sure about the title, Jeffrey, whereas everyone had told me the title was wonderful. Here was the head of the company, not sure about the title. So we got out of the lift. I remember she told me in a lift and the girl on the counter was reading it. And she said, oh, I, I, I love it. She's very kind. I love it. I love it. She said, oh, but what a wonderful title. And that was the end. The switchboard operator decided ahead of the head of the company that actually wasn't a bad title. So <laughs> uh, taking your point further on, if I may. Uh, so I went on being nervous. By then, 36, 35 different countries had purchased it. Because, of course, the story of it selling at one o'clock in the morning for 3,200,000 had got round. Mm. They all knew within a couple of weeks. And so they were all ringing up Debbie saying, so it was in 36 countries by then. Mm. And But up until that split second, <clears throat> when it came out, no, I still wondered. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malqui, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. Now, in the 80s, um, you went back into politics. You were deputy chairman for the Conservative Party. And I wondered, I mean, people can be quite scathing of MPs who try this sort of thing to straddle literary world and politics, something that our culture secretary Nadine Doris is currently experiencing a little bit, I think. Were you worried about the public reaction? Well, I've been asked that question in a different way. Do you now wish you'd never gone into the House of Commons and never worked for Margaret Thatcher and only been an author all your life? And it's a very difficult question to answer because how much of the experience of working for Margaret Thatcher, how much of the experience of being a member of parliament creeps into the books and gives you a tapestry that you wouldn't have had. So I think I'm 81. I've led my life. I'm a very happy person. Uh, I love writing. 
I was up at six this morning writing. I, I just love it. So the answer to your question is, no one can look back and say, oh, we'll sit down. It's a waste of time. <laughs> I'm very grateful. But by sheer accident, I discovered I had this gift for telling a story. And it is a gift. You may be a very distinguished and uh, good writer because you're well-educated and well-read and well-informed. But that being a storyteller is something totally different. It's like it's a gift, like being a ballet dancer or playing a violin or painting a picture. It's a gift. And it doesn't mean that you can't write a novel. It does, you mustn't get, I, I say to people, you mustn't get the two muddled up. When you get both, you get Charles Dickens. Sometimes you get one and sometimes you get the other. And even they can go to the very top. They can win prizes or they can sell millions of copies. But they are two different things. Yes, I actually completely agree. And as somebody who did well in school, I found this, a sort of a revelation and, and someone who was working as a journalist I found there's something of a revelation myself where you know I, I enjoy creative writing but it's it's an entirely different process and also there's no stamp of approval in the way that you would get in a normal educational process or a normal professional process um, and so I I found that an interesting thing to tackle because you're right just because you are good at one does not mean you will be good at the other um, just going back to the politics art Thing. Something I've thought about is I wondered whether one of the reasons why the public sometimes has a funny reaction to politicians who try to do something creative is because we associate politics with a certain type of ambition and whether we think of artists as people who oughtn't to aspire to ambition in that sense. I wonder if you agree. I read an article many years ago in The Observer which suggested the British people don't like people to have two talents. <laughs> they, I mean, if you open the batting as the, for England at Lords, you can't write a poem. And of course, Vakram Seff has proved to us all that if you're really talented, you can do more than one thing. In the case of Vakram Seff, you can play the oboe, you can write a brilliant novel, you can sing a song. Frankly, he can do anything as far as I can see. But he, this article suggested the British don't like, they, they get you pigeonholed and they decide you can't do anything else. So I think, yes, there's a bit of truth in, there's a bit of truth in that. that uh, but I've known extremely able politicians who have been able to do many other things and have either left politics because they didn't actually enjoy it because they weren't being allowed to do the thing they were good at. And I've met, I have met politicians for whom it's their whole life. And in fact, I was reminded uh, when my friend David Amos died, that actually it was his whole life. I mean, his family was a big thing, being a Roman Catholic and his family and was a big thing. But frankly, David ate, drank, slept being the member for Southend. And that was why they loved him in that constituency. So the answer to your question is a tricky one because the House of Commons has 650 members some of them among the most able people I've ever met in my life, and some of them among the most decent people I've ever met in their life. And it's now, we live in an age where you now criticize everybody, that's the fun. You know, let's pick up a, note, pick up a newspaper and see if you could turn a page without someone being knocked or something being bad, it seems. But I don't regret it. 
I'm 81. I've had an amazing, thrilling and interesting life. And uh, I think looking back and saying, you know, if I'd only done that or if I'd only done that or what a fool I made, I made of myself then, it doesn't get you anywhere. Mm. Do you think you would have enjoyed being prime minister? Do you think you would have enjoyed it? It's looking like a distinctly not enjoyable job right now. I mean, one of the problems with working with Margaret Thatcher is you realised the hours she did didn't frighten me, but her grasp of detail was staggering and her ability to take in and analyse a situation was staggering. And I know I was not up to that. I was not, I, I, I was much more fun on the ground. I was a constituency man who liked to go around the country seeing our candidates, talking to the citizens, reporting back to the chairman and then reporting back to the prime minister. That's what I enjoyed. And I think the answer to your question is I'd love to have been chairman of the party. I'd love to have been uh, mayor of London, but I don't think I was up to being prime minister. Uh, mm. I, I didn't have those qualities that are necessary. In 2001, you were sent to prison for perjury. And while you were there, you wrote the prison, your prison diaries. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about the experience of writing in prison and, and also whether you worried that that might damage your, at that point, um, very illustrious reputation as a writer. Well, I, I, it's, you, it's such a complete waste of time, a prison at one level, that actually what I did was write. I mean, you can either sit in your cell or go for a walk around the yard or whatever you do, or you can write. So I just spent night and day writing. And the other good thing that came out of it, of course, was the human beings you met, the stories you heard, most of them untrue. Uh, but that didn't stop the mind of an author being fascinated. So when I came out, I wrote uh, 12 short stories called uh, a 12 short stories and a book called A Prisoner of Birth. So... I used the experience in as a productive a way as I possibly could. And of course, you're quite right, the three prison diaries. Well, I think people are always interested in, I mean, all of the things that you write about, the sort of institution of Westminster or um, inside banks or art dealership or th these things that often seem quite difficult to understand from the outside and prison. I think all of these things are fascinating to readers, aren't they? Um, and it obviously helps if you have the in-person yes. experience. It's interesting you say that because I always say to authors, dare I say it to you, write about what you know about. The public will know straight away if you write about art or you write about politics or you write about big business or you write about sport or you write about something you love. They'll go, oh, he knows about that. That's obvious because there's always some reader who knows more than you do about that <laughs> subject. So, and you've got to live with that. So I always say, don't write a ghost story because they're in they're fashionable. Don't think you've got to use bad language every couple of lines because that's the end thing. Don't think you need violence because that's it. You don't. Give them a story and make them turn the page. I know you have this very strict writing regime now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think you write your first draft from your um, Mallorcan house, which is correct me if I'm wrong, called writer's block, which is also something correct. that you do, you do not suffer from writer's block ever, as far as I'm aware. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and the, this very strict regime. I'm a disciplined writer, but again, I say to her, you must do what suits you. I'm, I'm by nature a lark. My wife, Mary, is by nature an owl. So I rise at 5.30 and I work from 6 to 8. 
and then I take a two hour break. And then I write 10 to 12 and take a two hour break. And I write uh, two to four uh, and take a two hour break. Then I write six to eight and I'll be in bed around 9.30, 10 and up again at 5.30. The first draft will take mm, 40 days, 300 hours. Uh, and by the time the publisher sees it, I've done 13 or 14 drafts. I've done a thousand hours, but that suits me. Mm. I don't know when you wrote your novel, I can't believe you, you will have had your own way of writing it. I, I met oh. a lady yesterday who could do five hours in a row without <laughs> stopping. I'm incapable of that two hours and my mind is drifting and I need to rest. But I'm what sure you... you were different as well. What do you do in those two hour breaks between the, the ferocious uh, well, the first one, when I get up, I, I write the first two hours in, in a dressing gown. I'm on my own, I'm in my office, no one's there, there's no phone, there's no anything. So I come back and have uh, a shower and shave, and then I have breakfast, and then I read the morning papers. And then always, always, I rest for 30 minutes, flat on the bed, eyes closed, before going to session two, three, or four. So I clear the brain completely for 30 minutes, then uh, no one's allowed to speak to me as I get off my bed and go to my office. No one's allowed to pop along and say, would you like a drink? Here's a letter. Oh, Mary's been on the phone. No, they can do that after I've finished because then I'm ready for that. And when your brain is cleared for this 30 minute period, does it not naturally gravitate towards the plot of your book? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm not pretending it's clear. Oh, yeah, you're quite right. Uh, and maybe I've got a, a problem that I haven't yet solved. <sighs> Don't know what to do with a certain character. Not quite sure where the book goes next, because I, I never know more than three or four pages ahead. So, yes, is the answer to that question. You can't sit there and think about whether England can beat the Australians at Perth. No, that would be a complete waste of time. So I am thinking I've got Beth here and I've got Harry there and I've got Giles there. How am I gonna bring them together in one room without the reader saying that looks contrived? Because you must never write anything where the reader thinks you've contrived it all to happen. It must look yeah. as if it just naturally happened. So yes, I'd be do you're quite right. I'd be doing that uh, during the 30 minutes. And then when I sit down, I may not know where the book is going, but I've, I'm, I'm ready to go. Yes, and you don't plan as such, do you? Which I think is incredible. And one of the things <clears throat> about your books is that they're quite propulsive. They, they are always moving forward and they, and they do fit together like a Rubik's cube. It's sort of incredible to me that, that they're not planned projects. I mean, do you never find yourself writing yourself into a corner? Not, no, I can't say that has happened. I've written myself into a problem. I, I was, I had the privilege with Cain and Abel to be edited by the great Corley Smith. I mean, a legendary editor who edited J.D. Salinger. It was again an example of my publishers in New York panicking and saying, we'd better give him the best editor on earth. If this fails, we must not be able to say. And indeed working with him was, a great honor and a great privilege. And he said, you should always try and, picking up your point, Francesca, you should always, if you can, make it more difficult. 
So the reader can't see a way out. If you can't see a way out, the reader can't see a way out. So I said, what do you do then? And he said, well, if anything, you make it harder. You make it more difficult because then they have no hope. Of, well, what you've got to do is find a way out. And I gave you an example. I wrote a book called As the Crow Flies, uh, the story of uh, Sir Jack Cohen, the man who founded Tesco. And I knew Jack very well indeed, and he told me his whole life story, and I wrote it as a novel. Uh, not the bit I'm about to tell you, this I totally made up. He got himself into a problem, and he needed to see the one person who could solve it. And so I'd got that far in the writing. I knew that much. I then got him on an aeroplane to Australia, because the one person who could solve it was in, in a home in Australia. Mm. Right. I got him off the plane, I got him to the home, I got him knocking on the door, and the matron comes to see him. And he says, I'd like to see Mrs. whatever her name was, I've, I need to speak to her. And he said, oh, oh, how tragic. She died last week. But it took three days to get out of that problem. Because this was, I, I, the book was based on the, that she was the only one who could save his life at this point, who could save his empire, his company. And she'd just died. And they never got on in the first place. And I, so I, I, I walked and walked and walked and walked for three days. And always with these things, the great man said, Cooley Smith said, it's got to be a simple solution, Jeffrey. So everybody accepts it without question and you move on. Oh, easier said than done. Yes. And then I got it. He knocks on the door. She says he's dead. And she says, have you just come from England? She says, I wonder if you'd be kind enough to take this letter back and post it in England. It'll save me so much money. He's got the letter from her. He's got the letter. And in the letter is everything he needs to know. It was that simple in the mm. end. It must be such a moment of relief when oh, that comes to oh. Oh, <laughs> I've never had one that lasted three days. I've had one that lasted a day, lasted a few hours, but I've never had one that I could not see a way out. And I had callees in the back of my head saying, make it more difficult, Jeffrey. Make it more difficult. The reader will be more fascinated if you make it more difficult. <laughs> in a time like that, do you feel self-doubt? Do you worry that you won't be able to fix it? I did during those three days. I could not see an easy solution. And it would have meant a massive rewrite or just cheating, just having her alive, sitting up in bed, having, they're having a discussion, which I'd have tried to make awkward and tricky, but out came the stuff. That was the, that was the alternative. But in mm -hmm. Colleen Smith's view, that would have been lazy. So I know you, you've said um, earlier that you write about 14 redrafts or something. So it takes you two, three months to write your first draft and you just write without looking back, don't you? And then and then you take some time off and then you do your additional sort of Correct. 14 drafts. And and can we unpick what happens in those in those um edits a little bit? I mean, do you write mm. from start to finish again? Do you have a list of kind of big problems that you go back and resolve? How does it work? Because I mean 14 is a lot. <laughs> Well, the first three drafts are handwritten and are handed in the first, in that first 40 days, and are handed to my personal assistant. 
who gives them back to me triple spaced. And then I go to work on them with a pencil. And by the 14th draft, if I'm only changing one word every two pages or adding one sentence after every 10 pages, I know it's there. And it tells you it's there. It says, you've done enough. And in fact, Alison will sometimes say, actually, you've gone back to the sentence you originally wrote, this new <laughs> sentence. And so I, I, that's a kind of her way of saying, you're there, and it is. And I go through each draft three times. So I read the page, I say, take a chapter. I read the chapter through. Then I go back to the beginning and read each page twice. Hmm. So that by the time I've reached the end of the chapter, it's actually had three goes at it. And by the end of all of this, are you utterly sick of it? No, I'm more anxious about how the public will react because no one's seen it except Alison. So now I'm in that state of, oh my God, what's this? Is this any good? That's so interesting. So you do in fact enjoy all of that process. It's Every not day. arduous for you. No, I love it. Love it. I can't wait to get up at six o'clock tomorrow morning. Can't <laughs> wait. Are you afflicted by self-doubt in any part of your life or is this a sense of confidence oh, yes, something that- All the time. Uh, of course, if you're not, you're a complete fool. Uh, yes, all the time. And especially as I happen to live with a woman who's completely brilliant and does her job as chairman of the Science Museum and did her job as chairman of Cambridge University Trust Hospital with such skill. Yeah, of course, I spend every day of my life thinking, wow, uh, I want to be that good. <laughs> yes, I was thinking that your extremely disciplined routine sounds quite hard on your wife, Mary. Is it? Oh, her disciplined routine is far more difficult, far more hard than mine. She is like <laughs> she works harder than I do. She's more disciplined than I am. Uh, she takes being chairman of the Science Museum very seriously indeed. And I'll remind you because uh, it will it will amuse you at one level and annoy you at another. She's the first woman ever to chair a national museum or gallery in this country. That is disgraceful. She should be the thirtieth by now. Mm -hmm not the yes. first. So I've watched her amazing career with fascination and, 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 and I'm actually driven by uh, how hard she works. No, that was, I've never heard anyone put the question you've just put. The answer <laughs> is quite simply, she works harder than I do. You've written a couple of series now, the Clifton Chronicles and William, the William Warwick detective series of which your latest book, Over My Dead Body is the fourth William Warwick book. I wonder if there's something about writing a series that in a way makes it easier not to plan because you get to know your characters mm. so well. I know also Lee Child talks a lot about this sort of thing and it does make it easier, presumably, to write something impromptu if you have spent mm. a lot of time with those characters. Yeah, that's a fair point because, of course, when you go to the next book, you know all the characters. They're part of your life. They come back again and the reader wants them to come back again. They want to, it's a familiarity that they feel. I know William Warwick. I know Beth. I know the wicked uh, Christina, but you still got to do the story because each of the Clifton Chronicles is a separate story. The one that, that uh, has just come out is four unsolved murder cases where the commissioner feels that if you don't solve a murder case, the person might murder again. And the one I'm working on now 
is royal protection. Mm. Uh, and there's a whole squad who take care of the royal family and take care of ministers, senior uh, cabinet ministers, certain cabinet ministers. And looking back to Not A Penny More, Not A Penny Less, quite a while ago now, you've written a lot of books since then. Do you think you've evolved as a writer at all? Well, you, the word evolved is interesting. I think I'm a better craftsman, as I'm sure you think you are when you do your articles. Because when you sit down to write an article, you don't come it, you don't come to it with no knowledge. You come to it with years of knowledge. And so you know what an opening paragraph is, you know what a closing paragraph is, and you know what you've got to get in those first four paragraphs, and you know how you've then got to tell us the inside and the important stuff. Now, if you do that for the first time, you don't know that. You only learn it. So I think. Yes, I'm a better craftsman, but it is interesting that if I read the letters, it's still Cain and Abel they write about. A, a lot of people write about not a penny more, not a penny less. Mm. A lot of people write about the Clifton Chronicles, but it's still Cain and Abel they come back to again and again. So I think the storytelling is there from day one. The craftsmanship mm. comes from years of hard work. Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. If you enjoyed it, I'd be delighted if you fancied leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. That really helps people find the podcast if they've not heard of it before. Or on Twitter, where you can find me at Francesca Steele. Don't forget that I list my guests' books at my online bookshop, which is uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Francesca Steele. Details in the show notes. If you buy books there, you are helping me fund this podcast. So thank you and see you next week. <laughs>